can we can we do can we manage a math clap? Can we try that, <laughs> right? Three, five, twelve. <laughs> we'll, we're booked for our tangent already. Hey folks, welcome to the Unsung Podcast, where we're going to talk about some math <laughs> with an S. Uh, Unsung Podcast plus you times me it's equals good times. Equals two two pounds a week. <laughs> two pounds a week cubed. <laughs> uh, I am Mark Fraser. I'm joined by Christopher Cusack. Say hi, Chris. Oh Jesus, it's my Sunday name. Uh, <laughs> Hello, Marcus. Uh, and David John Weaver. Say hello, David. Hi, hi, David. <laughs> I think you find his full name's Davidian. Davidian. Yeah, I'm named after the Machine Head song that is younger than me. <laughs> no, he's named after the compound that was set on fire by the FBI. Abuse <laughs> Branch Davidian. Yeah. <laughs> so I did watch the I watched the Waco documentary the other day. Pretty dark. Is it good? Uh, oh Jesus! I mean, it's like the one that they made in the late 90s and it's just a huge amount of uh you know interviews with people that were there and then footage from the inquiry and stuff like that and i mean the fbi they were bad <laughs> the, 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 the what was it the bureau of tobacco and firearms as well yeah um but yeah they really just wanted from, to go in and kill everybody it was say uh, hey well, mad yeah, I think they definitely made an arse of it. Just like they did at Ruby Ridge and that kind of... Those two mistakes yep. are two of the things that brought us the entire fucking Trump movement and all of, like, Infowars, all that stuff. Like, those two events were mm-hmm. the, the the fuel for so many, especially in the militia movement. But you know who else was there? Um, apart from Bill Hicks, who uh, filmed some mad shit um, about Sherman Tanks and put it out in his box... or. Or it was put out by Sacred Cow and he's on the box uh, posthumously. But someone else that was there was uh, Timothy McVeigh. That's true. He he was watching it go down, handing out leaflets uh, and that. So yeah, just a, another example of how uh, the Waco siege and that clusterfuck led to future ramifications and all kinds of stuff. So yeah, there you go. Um, I didn't watch that. Uh, I, I went to the movies though. I mean, I, I you got the cinema. I did. Well, our audience, you, well, like you're also scattered around. I'm sure you're all getting out of lockdown at different times. In fact, some of you didn't actually go into lockdown because you've got capable governments. But um, we are down to what I think is colloquially known as tier two, mm-hmm. uh, which means that our cinemas are go again. So I went twice in the one day yesterday. Um, we'll not talk about the Conjuring, uh, <laughs> but I went to see Quiet Place too. Um, oh yeah, and. Wasn't massively impressed. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, it, I mean, they kept it under wraps for a long time because of the cinema's been shut, and I don't know that they made the most of it. Um, you know, on a music. Did you like the first one? I thought it was okay. 
yeah, yeah. yeah it's I thought I, it's a nice it, was, it got a huge amount of hype when I watched it, and I was like, it's a average action mm. horror movie. It was good that they in the first one they made some. I don't want to put any spoilers in, but they made some difficult decisions with like who died. That was kind of cool. I like it when films do that. But you know, I think. It, from a, from a music capacity One of the things that really annoys me is I think there's like a lack of I think it's probably pretty obvious There's a lack of attention to detail in modern filmmaking Especially at that scale Because, you know, so many studio execs and, But see if you're making a film called A Quiet Place There's so much scope to, to really do something special With the sound um, Especially the soundtrack mm-hmm. Because obviously a lot of the film is quiet And that's an interesting dynamic in the context of cinema Especially on a Saturday when Every fucking dobber has been let loose from his house and is just desperate to make noise. But have you ever heard a form of music called um, lowercase? I think we've spoken about it a long time ago. Mm. Yeah. Um, so it's like basically, I mean, it makes like slowcore and low and stuff like that sound like like Sabbath or something like that. It's 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 all about amplifying the tiniest noises. So they do things like they make music from the noises between the notes. There's there's albums of stuff like you know insects walking and and stuff like that Lowercase is about amplifying ridiculously quiet noises to to, to a, a higher extent, and it's interesting as well because certain noises are only heard by a different part of your ear. There's a different network of your ear. There's like the three bones that hear normal sounds, and then there's a different network that goes up the back of it, and that's where I think part of that ASMR effect comes from because that yeah. gets overstimulated when it hears those noises that are generally accustomed to being dealt with. With that, anyway, quiet place. I'm watching it going. Why don't they do lowercase for this? Why don't because you can still get beautiful symphonic, moving melodic stuff from lowercase music, if you, especially if you're going at it with that in mind. Mm-hmm. It was just so uninspiring, you know. It was just so flat and boring the approach to it, and and it, the basic plot offered this beautiful opportunity to do something totally innovative. Well, have, and, have, uh, you, have either of you seen Sound of Metal yet? Yeah, mm-hmm. no. I mean, really, really good film. That's a really good film, but they do a very interesting thing with the sound design and the audio, because it's mm-hmm. about Riz Ahmed and he's a drummer in a like sort of noise punk band, and he goes deaf and it's immerses the audience in the experience of going deaf as well and like yeah, yeah so that does it really cleverly. It just shows yeah, that you can do it. Obviously, you know he goes deaf, but it's maybe a bit of a spoiler. I don't know, but there's a point in it when he, he goes to start learning how to do sign language. And there's no subtitles on the sign language until he learns how to speak sign language, and then the subtitles pop in. It's really clever. Lots of really, mm-hmm. lots of really clever things like that in it about like his hearing and stuff, and you know all the various things to do to him. Yeah, it's actually a really clever film. So I know this isn't a movie podcast, but um, just one last thing. It's maybe a little bit in the arty end of the spectrum. But have you heard of a film called Weekend at Bernie's? <laughs> yes, yes. Because I feel that film does a great job of really empathising with the plight of a dead body well um, I mean if you're talking about if we're talking about movies and just class then last night I got in I t- had a couple of beers it's half one in the morning turn on the TV there's nothing going to be on 
I go to Sky Arts. Sky Arts, I hear you say. Mm-hmm. What's on Bash at half streets. one? No, it's Corn, Loud Crazy Love. <laughs> <laughs> and it is the film, it's a documentary about Brian Welch. He's head, wasn't he? Or is he monkey? Yeah. I watched that as well. I watched that, but not last night. I've yeah. seen it before. And He's just about how his... Um, about how Christian fucked up on drugs he was and then... Uh, yeah. yeah, discovering Jesus and born again Christian, trying to be a good dad and everything. Yeah. And, uh, but is he is, is he not got some fixation on masturbation or in not masturbating? If you know what I mean. Yeah, he got he got Jesus tattooed in his hand so that he wouldn't wank. Basically, <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's exactly what he said in it. I feel like when he was not in corn, yeah, he had it tattooed in his other hand so he doesn't play guitar. <laughs> <laughs> um. Right, well, we are doing a music podcast, uh, <laughs> contrary yeah. to what you probably think. And you know what? This week, um, I, as you could probably tell from the end of last week's episode when I announced this, I was really excited about doing this. And I think, by the way, we've had some really good suggestions from patrons about, you know, different bits and bobs about the show. Some of you had asked us to talk a little bit more at the start, so I guess that's what this is. Um, but also, to give you a little bit of insight, you know, we have to strike a balance when we're picking albums for this show. Uh, you, you want to do stuff that will engage with wider audiences and you want to try and occasionally slip in the more obscure thing, but it's kind of a balancing act. You know, you can do Deftones and get a massive audience, but you're also thinking, is that really stretching the premise a little bit? Um, so we always have this weighing up behind the scenes and we're trying to work out what's a good flow. Sometimes we get it, sometimes we don't. I think this week... Uh, this is definitely one of the purest examples of what I envisaged when we first decided we were going to do this podcast. I think this is probably one of maybe half a dozen records that I had in the back of my mind that one day I hope we have a sort of steady enough audience that we can start to platform stuff like this. This to me is the the purest, you know, essence of, of what Unsung can maybe do. Um, and I chose for this week... This is the third album of a band called Adebisi Shank by a band called Adebisi Shank. They have two other albums, uh, Answers on the Postcard, if you can guess what they're called, mm-hmm. and an EP. Which is also the same kind of names. Yeah. This is a band that, you know, full full disclosure, I'm actually quite familiar with. I put these guys on a long time ago. And some of their, I think maybe their first UK shows, they're from the Republic of Ireland, which for anyone further abroad is not the UK. Um, And uh, they're from Wexford uh, in particular. Uh, they, they formed in 2006, they ran until about 2014, three albums, one EP, it was only a trio, it was only ever a trio, um, it was Lar K on guitar, Vincent McCreeth on bass, Michael Rowe on drums, it was, it was Mick, Michael, that uh, I dealt with the most when I was doing bookings, he used to put bands on over there as well, he helped us, big part of the European underground scene, and Adebisi Shank, even though they managed to poke through that a wee bit, they got released in Japan, they got released in the States, they were very much uh, part of a move, a wider European. I don't even I don't want to like make it too narrow a definition, but like sort of like post hardcore meets art rock meets loads of experimental stuff, bits of noise, bits of electro. We've mentioned bands like Electric Electric and Marvin and Papier Tigre from France. There was bands like Picore from Spain. So, 
I mean, there, there was loads from down south here. There was a whole bunch from Scotland, most of whom aren't with us anymore. But so really, really like vibrant scene. Um, but I do think that Adbisi Shank were one of the ones that got the best f- formula. You know, they really they nailed it. They they also had an incredible balance of musicianship and eccentricity, and they're just a band that. I mean, I don't know. Could they ever have been that huge? Maybe not. It's pretty unusual stuff, although they, they definitely deserved to be more widely known. Um, so it's, it's really nice to get an opportunity to actually platform them. So this isn't somebody you're likely to have heard of, but please make the effort to... You'll hear the clips that I've cut into the episode, but please make the effort to go and check them out because you can't fully appreciate just how great and how original and how adventurous the music is until you hear it in sort of longer form. So yeah, we're going to talk about Adam Shank. Dave, you're already familiar, aren't you? Yeah, I remember finding them on MySpace, you know, pre-album and just getting really, really excited by them. And then saw them live a couple of times. I think I saw them, at, I don't know if it was in Block, but it was maybe, it was somewhere in Glasgow. And then I saw them a couple of years later um, when they were touring. And I, I think I saw, I actually saw them at South by Southwest. And I mean, an absolutely like stunning live band, so, uh, so much fun, um, mm-hmm. and they were like serious musicians. And I guess we'll we'll talk about them. And I guess you know, they are definitely defined as math rock, which I think we'll go into. Because are they the first math rock band we've actually talked about? Possibly, uh, um, possibly. I, I don't think they're very happy about that definition. I know that Vincent isn't. I know, but it's kind of. Uh, fault of their own for creating such a sound and then so many bands have <laughs> copied them that are that are math rock <laughs> uh but yeah i mean so, so good live and yeah very familiar with them so it's, be, it's been fun going back to them <laughs> uh, it's, it's quite funny that, that you chose this album because when you chose it i was like it's a great record because i have heard this band before i used to be in a band called sigazi and we toured with a band which we've mentioned in this podcast before called shambles and a husk uh, and there's their guitar player kyle is a huge fan of this band he's also tattooed a lot of my body <laughs> including more recently when he finished off six hours of my leg um i remember he put that he put this band on when we were on that tour but when he was tattooing me once uh, i drove him from his house in denison through edinburgh where he worked and he put this particular album on and I was like, yeah, this is some good shit, man. <laughs> fun, <laughs> fun drive. That's got to be almost exactly the length of the drive as well. It must have fitted perfectly. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, and he was also responsible for uh, another another artist that we've covered in this podcast, Marnie Stern. That, that, that Marnie Stern album that we did, uh, the self-titled one. Yeah. Uh, she and there's some similarities there, actually. Yeah, it's the kind of stuff that he really likes. You know, you can hear that in Shambles and Ask as well, you know. Um, yeah. So, yeah, he's responsible for that and this. Uh, and this is a fucking great record. This is easily their best album as well. I, don't, I mean, I, I obviously I agree, but I don't think it's so cut and dry. I think the second one's particularly good as well. But, um, like, I mean, just... Very basically, uh, the name Adebisi Shank, before anyone asks, is uh, the character Simon Adebisi was in that TV show Oz, 
you know, the prison drama. Mm-hmm. Um, and I mean, I'm assuming that he, he either made a shank or was shanked at some point, which is a sort of, you know, thrown together prison knife or blade, sharpened toothbrush, that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, you can tell I've got a lot of experience with these things. Uh also, a couple other connections that might make them more familiar. Mick and Lar were also in a band called Terror Dactyl before this. Um, lesser known, obviously. Uh, they toured Japan in 2008 with Light, L-I-T-E, big Japanese math band. Had to be seen an EP out in 2007. They had the first album out, it was 2008. Uh, 2010, their second album. 2014, this third album. It was released on August the 12th and they announced that they were splitting up on September the 24th. So like six weeks, something like that. Um, they did one final tour and then they were gone. Larkey, the guitarist, uh, later formed All Twins, spelt all A double L and then T V V I N S. We fill our cups with salty water, drank until we burst. Do yourself a fucking favor. Feel yourself a bone. A much, much more commercial venture, uh, but you can hear a little bits of it, we'll probably mention it. And um Vincent McCreeth did a thing called VMC Sound, which was video game soundtracks and Chip again two. that make yeah that makes an awful lot of sense in the context of the music once you get it um now god one thing about doing this is and david and i were both on the same page immediately like math rock is fucking punishing like it's punishing mm-hmm. and i i want to I, I dispute how purely math rock this band is anyway but um it, we've never done a math rock mixtape, and it seems almost like it should be an obvious choice. But the pros—I mean, the prospect of doing a math rock mixtape is so fucking daunting and so unappetizing. I mean, I, I could. I mean, we've done Britpop. I could do that again before doing a math rock mixtape. I could. I could probably do fucking Taylor Swift before doing a math rock mixtape. Mm-hmm. I mean, we. I mean, it, there's something like just. It's so draining to listen to. It's so cerebral and. It's cerebral, but it's also it's like something about the major key, and it's always so bouncy. So it's like hanging around with somebody that's just full of eckies and coke all the time, and just going, "Hey guys, yeah, Ooh, listen to me, I'm so fast, we do do dancing guy, dancing guy, Ooh, hey, hey. and then it will get bigger, and then it gets more dramatic, and then it gets more dramatic, and then you put the put the looper on, and then you get the fucking whammy bar, whammy pedal, and that's it. And it just keeps getting bigger and faster and bigger and faster and bigger and faster, and oh god, yeah, it's just quite tiring. Like there's there are a lot of good math rock bands but i mean are there that many good math rock albums uh, yeah i struggle fuck i mean obviously a lot of people will disagree including some people that listen to this podcast because i know them and some of them actually play it um i think we're not going to do a math rock mixtape and we're not going to dwell on this too much because too much to say about adabc but to, to very quickly skim through the subject i mean math rock is a tough genre to parse it's big um for me, as Dave says, you know, the major key thing, it quite often just grooves on like one root as well. You know, it sometimes lacks like strong kind of melodic root structures. It's sort of quite often a bit flamboyant playing. There's a lot of technical ability involved in it, which isn't necessarily bad, but it depends how you how you temper that. Um it kinda of, to me, Math Rock sort of became like a kind of sensitive guy 
acceptable woke post hardcore equivalent of like metal like the same way that like kids used to sit and just shred on their bed with their fucking long hair and like listen to Motley Crue and stuff like that in the 80s I feel like math rock became a way for those kids with those attention spans and those abilities to sort of channel them but in a slightly less gormless 80s misogynistic sort of unself-aware fashion do you know that it's sort of like there's a hipster metal vibe to it and it often overlaps to it. i think i think it does have a sense of there's a little bit of like arrogance in it and it's got a kind of high art condescension towards some metal i mean you'll get a lot of power metal you'll get stuff bands like manowar as well and and math rock seems to often appropriate a lot of what they do but appropriate it with a kind of knowing nod i mean i'd do that as well but it's how they do it um yeah, is, like, I mean, uh, I guess we're, we're tarrying a lot of math rock with the same brush here. I, I guess what we're talking about is the math rock that goes down the very genre-specific routes and that you see at, like, festivals that are just literally just full of bands that just sound the same and it is, you know, just that loop pedal, that whammy pedal, that sort of hi-hat dance beat. And, um, yeah, it's sort of become a parody of itself in many ways. There are yeah. obviously bands with mathy elements that go outside that that you know genre, but yeah, I guess we, we're bad mouthing the the yeah. shitty genre tropes. Oh, you know, I will I will be more fair minded. I mean, I just think it does it it proves too exhausting for a lot of people. You know, I think it's got a simplicity problem, and a lot of it is a bit. It can become a bit of a technical arms race. You know, it can become about how many notes, and you know. Gadgetry is a big part of it as well. Now, Adebisi Shank use a lot of gadgetry, mm-hmm. but it's a very, it very much contributes to the music as opposed to just being a sort of like refuge or a, or, or a trope. Um, but often the songs suffer, as I was saying about the lack of like strong root structures in some of these bands. It, it, it's all very deconstructed and complex. And sometimes that's a good thing. You know, there's a lot of music I like that, that does that, but it, it can often have the effect of making the music incredibly mild and diluted. Melodically, you don't have a lot to emotionally connect with, which is why I'm saying it's cerebral. You don't often listen to a lot of math rock with your heart. You find yourself just listening to your head and sort of doing the sums. I think that's kind of part of where it got that moniker. Now, like Dave was saying, I mean, if you if you look it up, we're not going to land on a definition or do it any real justice. But you know, the Wikipedia mentions King Crimson and Rush bands like that as being like the very early progenitors of it. But it also mentions things like Steve Reich. Um, there's loads of talk about like counterpoint, time signatures, dissonance, minimalism, and really the Wikipedia doesn't leave you any further down the road to understanding what the fuck it actually is. Um, the early King Crimson stuff I think is appropriate, but also think bands like Slint get a mention in there.
uh, Frank Zappa I think gets a mention uh, as an influence in a lot of math rock I mean you'll get reasonable odds that a lot of math rock fans also love Les Claypool Um, mm-hmm. There is a technical wankiness to it, and it's one of the reasons I fucking can't stand Primus. But the, there's certain touchstones that sort of crop up a lot. Um, I think I think certain aspects of the sound owe a lot to bands like Van Halen and to bands like Focus. Uh, who don't maybe get mentioned enough, you know, incredibly technical, but quite OTT, buoyant, sort of high production bands. That's that's a big part of some avenues of it. There's a lot of jazz in it. Um, it's massive in Asia. Bands like Toe and Light are huge exports. heavier stuff like Boredoms and Zeni Geva, who aren't math rock but they have that kind of experimental arty dissonant edge that does occasionally cross over it, even, even um, Boris probably crossed over it sometime um, but then on the other side of that you do have a lot of the math rock certainly the math rock that I think of when I say it and the stuff that, this is where I'm trying to temper my criticism and my generalisation it, it grew from a different place it didn't grow from metal, it didn't grow from jazz and it didn't come from like King Crimson and Rush it came from a lot of like more experimental post-hardcore, so I think like bands like Farrakay get mentioned a lot in Dismemberment Plan Also, Fugazi and at the driving, uh, like that deconstructed, quite bitty, interwoven guitar approach is is something that has been sort of taken to the nth degree by some of the players in math bands. Um, there's bands like Sweep the Leg Johnny, Helmet, and Jesus Lizard who are noise bands, really. their love of like weird time signatures and odd bar lengths and cutting things off here and there and you know little bits of innovation that cropped up in those bands appeared in math rock and I think those bands have had an influence in Adebisi Shank you can hear some of the chunkier moments and some of the they've got a better sense of brevity and minimalism maybe that informs some of the better parts of the genre in my humble opinion um, but yeah, I think a lot of these people then got into like eighties metal and stuff like that. So you'll find that sometimes math rock can end up sounding somewhere between like waiting room, one arm scissor, and something like jump or beat it. You know, you have like a shredding cheesy sort of love of the eighties mixed with this sort of like post hardcore sense of wanting to kind of create and be a little bit different. And sometimes it works, and sometimes it sounds like Manowar. Um, 
And also, I, I probably shouldn't leave out that equation. Iron Maiden and Iron Maiden have got a, the, the technicality of that band has a, a massive influence on a lot of math rock fans. And I'm sure that in the many math rock touring vans going up and down the country, things like Thousand Trees and Art Tangent and that, you'll often hear um, many a Maiden album blasting out the windies um but yeah i mean it's not a genre i look forward to doing a mixtape on we will if if you throw enough money at us but we'll basically do anything if you throw enough money at us so that's that's not really saying that much um but yeah let's not get too caught up in that i'd rather spend more time talking about adbc shank um and i mean i think one thing they highlight is that the membership of math rock bands really plays a big part in them the the, the technical prowess of of the various members and that balance um, there's something about Adebisi Shank that I really love comparing to Rage Against the Machine because Michael Rowe was quite a stripped back, quite a quite a minimalist drummer given that he was in a math rock inverted commas band. Um, he has much more of the approach in Rage Against the Machine which is to lock onto grooves and kind of take these fluttering sort of arpeggiated bits of notes that are flying about between the guitar and the bass and Michael sort of gives them a spine gives them like uh, some kind of superstructure and I think that composition of the band is is really important in the longevity and the accessibility of their music because it's something that a lot of other bands didn't have that arms race continued behind the kit and you ended up with jazz drummers playing along and it was just so fucking difficult to follow what was going on and an hour of being battered by that you know in a field and outside fucking Bristol things like that you know it's just it's uh it's fucking hard going <laughs> Am I am I way off for that Rage Against Machine comparison? No, I think you're right. I think you know the not just not just the actual the way it logs like the groove, but a lot of the tones he uses as well. That mm-hmm. big that big fuzz as a total Rage Against the Machine vibe, you know. Uh, I think it works. It actually works. Uh, the further they get into their career, the better produced the albums are, and the more expansive their sounds are, the better he holds it together. Because I feel that. Mm-hmm. Maybe in that first record, when it's more of a slightly stripped back, one dimensional, like live thing, you can. Uh, sometimes I just feel that oh, he's just hitting that fucking hi hat really hard and not doing enough because the sound isn't full mm. enough. But yeah. like by the time it gets to the third record, I think it, he absolutely nails it because he's it's stripped back, but the rest of the the sound is totally full. So, I mean, as you say, yeah, the production uh, as their career develops plays a big part, I think. And obviously they become better players. I mean, they, they, I, don't, I don't even think Michael would be offended by this. I think the guitar and bass in this band from the outset are ahead of the drums in terms of technicality and ability. I think, I, I can't remember the name of the song, but there's a video for one song at least online that the video is just Lars foot on his, foot pe- uh, on his pedal board. I mean, his pedal board is... Very high mm-hmm. tech. I mean, it's fucking like NASA. Um, and the video for the song was just somebody filming his feet dancing around, trapping notes in the looper, and then the, the loop station here, and then the freeze pedal there, and then a pitch shifter and octave there, then a whammy here. And he's just so busy, he's sometimes literally jumping with two feet 
onto two pedals at the one time and jumping back off again and like watching him doing that live was fucking amazing it was like totally hypnotic um and you know as with many math rock bands there was always a crowd of like other math rock musicians down the front of the stage fucking like you know and i'm sure like adivisi shank proportionally had way more of a share of musos coming up to them asking about their pedal setup and fucking throwing names and stuff at them when they just wanted to go and relax and have a beer uh than than your average band um vincent as well i mean he was very uh <laughs> notorious for always playing in this kind of like red fabric mask I don't even know what it was. It wasn't like a pair of pants or tights or anything like that. It was just some sort of red fabric thing that he pulled down over his face. He was a really, really gifted bass player um, who did use a wee bit of technology, but also, I think, knew when to totally just jam it out and, and, and lock onto something deep and solid with, with Michael. And especially the, the longer they went on, the more they did that. He also m- mercifully rarely resorted to slap bass, which... <laughs> that's the fuck it, that's game over for me um, as I said the first EP this is the EP of a band called Adwisi Shank came out in 2007 it was only four tracks it was 17 minutes and it was a pretty strong start I think it, the second half it kind of strays a bit and becomes just a little bit kind of like off the shelf math rock um, the first track in that horse was one that fans of the band became really familiar with very hammery and lots of pedal work <laughs> I think it, it was kind of natural for a new it sounds like the obvious sound for a new math rock band they're kind of testing their limitations and sort of getting everybody on the same page uh, although there is a lovely melodic part around about 2 minutes 15 that even from that early stage shows that they're a math rock band that is a little bit more aware of the fact that they need to keep the audience interested not all the audience might be fucking virtuoso guitarists Mm -hmm. Um, the second track in that jump cut as well uh, is a little bit less mathy a bit more simplified it's got a really lovely chorus ring off motif lets you get your breath back um, which I think is really important that awareness of giving people a bit of a breather um, and it shows just that li- the little hints of pop sus um, the year after that they brought out the first album significantly for me certainly when I was interested in booking them back in the day it was recorded by Jay Robbins of uh, Jawbox Burning Airlines Robin's a great producer um, his bands were brilliant I'm sure Jawbox was a pretty big influence on IWC Shank as well so you can see that even just with that pairing there's a, there's an element of that post-hardcore lineage 
that I was describing. You know, it's not this isn't just a band that's been fucking listening to Steve Vai and and jazz for fucking years. This is a band that's come from like hardcore, has played the DIY scene. But I mean, don't get me wrong, the Van Halen thing is still there, definitely. There's only eight songs in that first album. Uh You Me, the first one, very technical, noisy intro, but it's got a brilliant vocoder gimmicky trade-off with the words you and me going back and forward. There's a the brilliant drop about a minute 45 in that Where it goes down to this building end motif uh, It's kind of tapped But it's also really catchy It doesn't get too technical The the, the album does Sometimes get a little bit too workouty. Um Like the, the, the root chords Occasionally do just get a little bit too static uh, But it is a first album And it has a lot of really really Exciting guitar and bass interplay in it um, The fifth track in that one Mini Rockers Has a, a really nice change of theme. Um, it's got a kind of slightly melancholy air about it, um, and the central progression is nice. It's got some great changes of pace as well, some real shuddering stops, and and it's something a little bit different. Dave, you were talking about snake hips. Uh, yeah, it's a good tra- song as well. Yeah, tr- track eight on that. Snake Hips is Michael coming into play in a big way. It's got a really cool, different sort of like rim shot snare motif that that, that kind of propels it, um, and it's the, the drumming in it is really well used. It's it's kind of peppered with little bursts of things, albeit quite simple. And at the same time, I would say that as interesting as the the, the percussion isn't it, the central musical themes in it are a wee bit forgettable. I don't think it's their their most tuneful song in the in the long term, but it, it shows at least they were willing to kind of think outside the box. Um, but yeah, that album just makes sense for a, a young math band kind of getting their chops in order, you know, um, building one part of their armory at, at a time. You can hear them all, right, we've got our got strengthening our confidence with percussion, strengthening our confidence with the guitar and bass, dialances with the vocoder, things like that, and slowly putting things together that we're going to potentially make for something pretty special in, in, in the, the long run. But I think they probably realised, like, right, lads, you know, check, check, check. Now we need some songs. Um, second album, 2010. This is the second album of a band called Adebisi Shank. I actually think this is pretty strong. I, I, I don't like. I, I think this uh, holds up quite well, even compared to the third one. It's mathier. It's more orthodox. If you're talking about those kind of mathy post-hardcore bands, um, I can see how pure kind of purists might see this as the the, the unsung album in their arsenal. Um, I don't think it's quite got the sort of big eighties Huey Lewis extravagant moments. You know, it it, it doesn't quite. 
go to those lengths. Yeah. Um, but it, it definitely has a swagger that wasn't there on the earlier records. I think even just the way it starts, the international drumbeat song, you can you can hear Michael walking into the room, sitting down at a drum kit and starting this really simple kick pattern, but the kick's triggered. So it's just it's really odd. But it's a very cocky thing to do, you know. If you're a you're a kind of DIY band from from Ireland and the on the underground scene, it's it's got a little like I said. I think it's got a bit of swagger. It's got a bit of self confidence and a strut to it. I think it's a great way to start out. Um, yeah, it's actually this album actually feels a lot more nineties dance to me than the, the compared to the eighties mm-hmm. sort of hair metal. This the, the third one. Which are two really weird things to say when you think about what kind of band this is, but when you listen to it, it just makes sense. <laughs> you know, there's a lot more kind that, of that's triggered stuff and, and, and drum beats and keys and stuff in this, which which kind of give it that trancey almost feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's definitely something that math rock often does, is touch on, like, dance music. Um, and especially live, you often see math rock bands trying to be really dancey and trying to get people to dance. And so often, especially on record because they're using real instruments or, you know, and they're not just, they're not producers, they they have a beat, but it doesn't stand up to actual proper dance music because it's like, oh, it's a guy with a bass and a drum kit and it's like, oh, I see what you're doing. You're a live band trying to do dance music, but because it's the fourth genre that you're trying, it's not actually great dance music. It's just, you know, whatever it is. But they, yeah, you can start to hear them getting it totally right on this. And it's it is good dance music. Um, yeah, I mean, there's a couple of there, there's some really standout tunes in this one. I think the second one, Massa, is a really good one. It is very mathy, but it's got loads of effects and chops to the fore. Uh, the, the the bass tone's big in it, which which is an improvement. It's it's just a bit crunchier and fuller and more engaging, uh, and the drums are pretty bombastic. And I also think about two minutes fifty, you hear a little bit of lightning bolt pushing through, and the influences they do a kind of feedback thing, and it's it's it, it really reminds me of some of the kind of raw raw noise uh, elements that used to push through in lightning bolt, albeit it's not as fucking boring. Um, and there's also a great a guitar effect at the end there it's like a super extreme and very fast rotary sort of tremolo game it's, it's just fucking brilliant like a really really interesting effect um Genki Shank, that the third one has yeah. some uh, a good song. Yeah, really good song. Has some big doses of like the French bands like Marvin that I've spoken before. The people that play the unsung theme tune. For those of you that are wondering who mm-hmm. the fuck is that band, I know that name. Uh, so the folk that do our theme tune, I think this song owes a bit to playing with bands like that because that was the circuit they were touring on. Um, this song kind of comes across like a slightly more light-hearted version of Transam, thanks to the vocoder in it. Uh, 
Um, and it's also got a terrific riff at the end of it. Uh, the guitar and the, the, the bass have this really great choppy interplay going on. Uh, Micro Machines is good. It's a, I mean, talking about Vincent going on to do video game music, it sounds like a Sega version of Rage Against the Machine. Uh, the best track on the album for me is Bones, the seventh one. I think that's a brilliant song. a really strong melodic foundation in it that carries all the technicality brilliantly like the technicality rides along on these big undulating waves of melody and I think that's really important for math rock because as I said before it can there's there's a total paucity of like attention to people that aren't math musicians that aren't obsessed with it with, with the technicalities of the music this song gets it all right for me It's got nice little moments of catching your breath between bursts and at the end when all the different elements that they've been kind of teasing and pushing in there, they all gel together. I think it's fucking brilliant. Best moment on it. Frunk as well, which starts very, very functional and unremarkable. At one minute fifty, takes a big jump up. Um, the the vocals come in; they're really fantastic fun in it. Uh, and uh, the second half, the percussion in it just it elevates it as well. I, I mean, I think it's a really, really good record. I don't think it's good as the last one, but certainly for some of the math heads. But yeah, I mean, for me, we had to be see Shank. It's all about this third album. This is the third album by a band called Adibisi Shank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it, it's it, this one's nine songs, although it's like eight proper songs and then a, a little kind of like outro motif. Um, and I just, I just kind of want to dig into it because I think there's a lot to say about this album, um, and I kind of want to do it justice. Uh, about first thing that has to be mentioned is the cover art. I fucking absolutely love the cover of this album. Like, I mean, it's it, stupid, it, but it's funny. A guy with like a light bulb head exploding. It's by a guy called uh, Sonny K, who, I, I mean, I believe he's based in Las Vegas in the States, but Sonny K, I'm guessing maybe he's a, he's, he's come from Ireland at some point. He, he'd also done artwork for Cattle Decapitation as well as a whole bunch of other people as well. But this is a, I, I just think this is a fucking terrific cover. If I didn't already like the band, I would definitely have picked this up on multiple occasions to see what the hell it is. Um, it starts with a tune called World in Harmony. Uh, and actually, you know what? This is followed by a track called Big Unit and for me, I kind of feel like Big Unit might have been just as good if not slightly better an opener. That is not a criticism of this song, mm -hmm. I just mean in terms of track order and I wonder if the band did ever debate that, I'm sure they did. Mm -hmm. um, it's a great song, it's a great song, uh, it's upbeat and playful, it's got less of a kind of immediate impact to it, it kind of teases you in a wee bit. Um, has it drops out at one point to this fucking brilliant sort of distant riff where the guitar sort of seems like set way back in the mix. Uh, it, there's this single little pinched harmonic and then it just explodes out of the vocoder. Um, when the vocoder does arrive, it, 
it just it gives the whole song much greater focus, uh, much greater accessibility, and I think it just is very obvious that they're less concerned with like Matthew riffing in one key in this tune. Also, like the direction change, which I think is like 222 in the song. Uh, Mick uses the the, the 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 drums to just great effect to just completely you know, sort of ragdolls the audience about. It's, it's a brilliant song. There is a good chance that Big Unit might have been a bigger opening. I'm well, not sure. I think yeah, I think yeah, there's a good there's a good case to be made for both. Um, but I don't know how many though. I think it kind of lowers down a little bit. You know what I mean? Which I, which I like, which is what I like about it. The bass tone is fucking mighty, like skyscraper huge. Love it, <laughs> um, and it's got a real big Celtic feel. Like this band feel like the math rock version of Big Country to me. Yeah, no, there's. I've, I've got that in my notes. Yeah, I've got Big Country in my notes as well. <laughs> At least three times yeah. on this record, there's Big Country. Absolutely, Absolutely, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's so strange, isn't it? I mean, that it, it's weird that in the in the face of all this technicality and all these robotics and vocoders and all this stuff, they managed to channel the fact that they're from fucking Ireland. That there's a Celtic flavour to yeah. it. Yeah. And this is another thing that I think makes it really stand out, even just in their catalogue. Like, there's something of the personal in it. It couldn't just be a band from anywhere. It couldn't be a band from fucking Washington D.C. or from fucking Tokyo. It's something distinctly Celtic about it, and it was so weird because the the first few times that I was like this fucking big country yeah. <laughs> like, I thought maybe, maybe this was just an unhealthy obsession of mine but no, it is like, interesting I'm, I'm though because you can see. definitely hear Japanese influence of like vi- video games so like they are video from games. Ireland oh, but yeah. they have played lots of Nintendo <laughs> and especially on, on <laughs> uh, big unit get- as well yeah, I mean, if these guys hadn't have been out there playing gigs they would have been definite Irish otaku I don't even know <laughs> what an Irish otaku would have been yeah, big unit what a fucking tune uh, I will say The first eight seconds of this Sounds like churches mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> And I think actually That's interesting Because the band That uh, Lar went on to do after this All Twins mm-hmm. Um Full disclosure, again, if the band are listening to this, I'm sorry, I fucking hate that band. Um, I really don't like the music. It's 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 so ambitious in, in its kind of pop thirstiness. Um, it never clicked for me. Um, I could see. I, I think it came about on the back of bands like Churches getting picked up, and there were a lot of indie musicians looking to sort of like get get a paycheck from from making pop bands, and some of those were great, and some of them were not. Um, I think that was what was happening here, and I don't think it translated well in the Old Fins project. They're still making stuff. I'm really not a fan of it, um, and I hope that is taken in the. Uh, <laughs> the generous spirit with which it's meant It just really doesn't resonate with me um, But I do think this song is a fucking great moment in the, in, the, in the development of this band Where they just find a little bit of like pop genius
you could tell that they were sort of dancing around it and then this fucking tune um which is not to say that it's particularly predictable or, or obvious in structure um it does have big country in it um i think it drops out of that intro thing into like almost like a big country riff um just prior to the the minute mark it swoops into this huge arena style expansive soundscape thing i will say as well towards the end of this uh i think there might be an overdub of applause like arena yeah. style mm-hmm. applause like a kind of tongue-in-cheek huge audience thing and in, in the mix i mean the whole thing is just way more bombastic certainly than the, the albums that preceded it do you know what i actually i got flavors of queen on it yeah, I think that's very fair, especially like later mm, Queen. Mm-hmm. I don't. I mean, I'd imagine they're probably pretty big fans. Yeah, this is big in eighties, man. Like it's got a big eighties vibe. Yeah, that big rhythm guitar, it, like dun, 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 dun. you know that Vince uh, described the fact that Prince is one of the most heavily played records in their van as well. I was going to say, see, because that lead guitar tone on this with the hundreds of delay and reverb, it just sounds like fucking <laughs> like something out of Purple Rain, the album, mm-hmm. the guitars. Yeah. It's huge. And this whole album is ridiculous. It's so much fun, which is something for me, a lot of math rock is not. It doesn't take it at all seriously. Yeah. No, it does. It's, it's very, very whimsical, isn't it? But like whimsical, not in a goofy throwaway way. It's whimsical, but still sticks to the job at hand. Yeah. You know, still sticks to songs. Um, there's some really kind of like interesting random arp guitar effects in this. There's a bit of octaver. And then there's like this really cute little dropout that builds to a sort of euphoric thing at three and a half minutes. I mean, Big Unit is just a, a great song for them if you're trying to showcase them to one of your friends. And that would probably be the one. Um, Turn around the third track when it a brilliant change of pace. Like it's great in sequence and they've really thought it through. They've been like, right, we've had two kind of big gutsy songs there, accessible, hooky, catchy, whatever. They just come straight in. No fucking around with this galloping double kick Married to kitsch Japanese pop metal um, Which I think might be a sort of like product To some of their time over there And some of their video game influences uh. Oh, then again, it could also be that those those instincts were why they enjoyed a decent reception over there. But yeah, the video game qualities in this are massive, um, and it's it's also got weirdly little sniffs of like Afrobeat, just in, in, in the way that the arrangement of the guitar, bits of like that Ghanaian rock that we talked about in the Goat uh, episode. There's like thunder and percussion later on it as well, where like a really funny pop goes the weasel dropout. Do you know the bit I mean? Well, it's funny you say Pop Goes the Weasel because I just, I find that whole song is like a, like, souped up kids song. It is like a nursery <laughs> tune. Um, the whole thing is so childish, but 
like an, an animated Japanese cartoon or something like that. You can imagine yeah. it being, being in the opening credits. I feel like we're listening to a different song, man. This sounds like Kaylee to me. It sounds like an Irish <laughs> Kaylee. There's an accordion effect in the guitar. It's like a pure Irish jig. That's true. That's mm. true. It does have a jig. It, it, no, I, I, you're right, actually. I th- I th- that's the thing, though. They, they are, they're, they're melding both of those different instincts. They're melding this kind of weird Celtic rock thing mm-hmm. and a tongue-in-cheek Kaylee thing. As, as you say, you're right, but... But then again, they also have this huge Japanese anime kids show thing going on. It's such a fucking weird bit of music. There's so um, much melody in it as well. Like there's heaps of melody in yeah. all their songs, but this one particularly, mm-hmm. it's catchy as fuck. Um, but for me, like, I mean, how do you follow a song like that? Well, you follow it pretty much the only way you could with Mazeltov. has the biggest of 80s energies <laughs> yes it's a yacht rock song man it's like it's like hollow notes or something like it's mental <laughs> i just i love the vibe of this song this is what i want i just want to bathe in this it's like a miami vice or something like that, that is, as well yeah. it's got like bits of billy ocean lionel richie hugh lewis and the news it is so fucking obnoxious it's got yuppie stuff all the way through it Like a comedy version of Patrick Bateman in it. I mean, it's just. That's <laughs> quite funny. I, wrote, I can imagine Patrick Bateman loving this song for some reason. <laughs> I mean, it's beautifully self aware as well. It's like a, a riff on a theme. It's got like loads of like distorted, skewed vocals in it, which is odd because it's such a glam, cheesy song. Mm-hmm. But it has interesting tones to try and balance that. It, it reminds me a little bit of a track called Obscene Strategies by Trans Am from their. Um, Sex Change record Which has a sort of Similar sense of humour About 80s music About just suddenly Dropping into some Big funk rock Funk pop mm. um, Yeah I'm assuming it's It's real saxophone And it's You know Real brass And it works really well It's like Smooth And just comes in And it's interesting That that doesn't happen more often because the tone really works mm. well that was sweep the leg johnny's thing sweep the leg johnny were you know math rock yeah sex. yeah yeah and i guess like you know you've got colin stetson who who does that whole thing but um yeah it's just mm. interesting that you maybe i guess there's maybe just not that many saxophonists that are into this <laughs> but um yeah uh, yeah i'm assuming it's played as well yeah i think i think it must be real sax one i didn't actually check that but yeah. it's, it's brilliantly synthesized if it's not yeah it's got Pure Fer- Ferris Bueller vibe. It's like something out of John Hughes film. <laughs> it does, yeah, yeah. Um, there's some great gated tremolo in it where we we pitch shifts. There's also, did you notice the steel drum effect? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's fucking brilliant as well. Yeah, I mean it's so smug. You gotta love it. It's a it's a terrific song. It's a bags of character in it. Uh, Thunder Truth, the fifth track. A um, little bit less to say about that I mean I, I like it It's not my favourite on the album But the, the vocoder in it Is a lot of fun And it has some Beautiful little glistening Sort of uh, Cascades Which I don't know If they're synth Or if they're synth Like guitar through a synth pedal But it's, it's, a, it's a lovely little effect um, What I'd like to spend A little bit of time on Is Sensation The sixth track <laughs> 
Sensation for me I, I, would, I would have done this for Unsong probably if we hadn't done the album I mean I think this is definitely in the top 10 songs to emerge for like the European underground scene uh, in the last couple of decades it's absolutely fucking tremendous tremendous bit of music I think it's a masterclass in what they're doing um, it's got loads of like 80s stuff it's got yeah. loads of dance nods it's got everything feel like I mean I think the choppy vocals that they mm. use in it are a bit reminiscent of Blank Mass what he's mm-hmm. doing now they're quite aggressive you know but then you've got dance beats uh, like the, the, the dance disco beat thing throughout it is, is superb he never overplays but he, he gives it a total propulsive energy um, there's some really nice kind of upstroke beats in it that give it a little bit of a bounce uh, and there's also in the drums a couple of very very clever missed beats that break up the symmetry of the line and it's such a simple technique it's just just pausing that hand just for like one one and a half and then coming back in and it, it's a hook in itself that little mixed beat you can imagine drumming it as you're driving along on the steering wheel um i think the the, the first drop into that deep house pad effect at, at one minute 30 is brilliant Now he does that again near the end of the, the song but that's such a dance thing and it's not just dance like in a chart way it's actually like a deep house reference yeah that and it's like sh- like i was saying on the previous record like there's a lot of math rock bands that do the dance thing but you know it's fine for a math rock band doing it but it's not good cut the mustard if you play it at the sub club but like this you could easily play this at sub club you know optimal could just drop this it's a fucking high quality house tune yeah um, and it's also a total banger that gets stuck in your head as well. Um, when it comes out of that sort of house bit, it resurfaces with this really direct part. The the bass is really pushing things along. Uh, there's kind of a load of little layers starting to merge, like contrapuntal guitar uh, that slowly build up to something, drops briefly into something that sounds like Sonic the Hedgehog. It sounds like a bonus level on Sonic the Hedgehog and then shifts back to that slowly building crescendo that was happening and there's at this point there's so many things, so many elements, melodic elements, there's this like lush kind of tapestry, very detailed tapestry of notes and layers and loops that have been building up. It's just fantastic. Like it's it's genuinely euphoric. And then drops out once more into that pad and then nice driving outro. It's a fucking genius bit of music. It's a humbling bit of music to someone in a band. It's, just, it's totally inspired. Yeah, I, I love I love the driving, the way the bass holds it down with the driving rhythm like, the whole time. It changes up, you know, and when it does a dancey bit, the production, the drums and the bass actually sound like they're from like a house tune in the 90s as well, which is a, mm-hmm. a really clever little touch. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, and the guitars are, are great as well, man. 
to me, it's it's easily the high point of the album, which is not the, the album has many other high points, but I mean it's tremendous. Um, it's followed by Chaos Emeralds, the seventh tune, which uh, is for me big country. Totally, yeah, yeah, doing doing Sega. Um, the the vocoder in that is used probably as percussively as it is melodically. It forms like a, a, a lot of the edges in this song, a lot of definition. There's also, I think, this tune you can hear them clearly building upon the stuff they did earlier in their career. Because about two minutes seventeen, they play these piano strikes which bed all of the madness so nicely into like a, a, a ground of melody. You know, it really adds so much more to the song rather than it just being clever ideas flying about your head. It suddenly makes sense. And I just think that was a, a great marker for how far this band had come, that one simple production decision. The eighth track in it, Voodoo Vision... This song almost starts like a John Hopkins record. Like it's got a very, very understated intro that sounds like it's going to be electro, but then it turns into just total victory rock. Leto probably been the closest reference we've got from the Scottish scene this kind of like very triumphal the guitars are the guitars pure dragon force that lead is pure dragon <laughs> it totally force. is actually yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the, again the, the vocoder on this is a little bit more aggressive I think to offset the sort of cheesy sweetness of the song They've gone quite hard on the vocoder sound. It could have been something a bit more Daft Punk, but it's not. And uh, I also think it teases you with a fake ending where it drops down to this bit that to me sounds exactly like something off Melancholy and Infinite Sadness. then it comes back for that one last hurrah mm-hmm. see when the bass is falling that lead guitar and it's like really high up it's got loads and loads of fuzz on it and then it comes back with those big huge dive bomb bits it's proper like 80s metal I fucking love it it's so thick and beefy at the end when it becomes triumphant like you said it feels like you're, you're just beating the boss at, like in a Final Fantasy game <laughs> you know um, and it has a key change at the end because like why the fuck not right yeah. it's the only song on the album with a key change in it and it's like well they've done everything else every other rock and roll cliche has been chucked at you in this record there's just one left have it you know and it's a fucking key change that's <laughs> it, it, a really interesting analogy right because uh, as we mentioned the final track in this album Trio Always is really just a little outro bit of music, this like sweet instrumental thing um, that, as you said about beating the boss, 
it does kind of sound like you know after you finish the Nintendo game, you always got that sort of denouement mm-hmm. of oh, is this it? I don't win money or that. I just get like a little animated sort of video clip that's about a minute and a half long with some gentle twinkly music, like at the end of like when you played like Super Mario Three for fucking like hours and you finally got to that bit and that was it. It was just a wee video of Princess Daisy. Yeah, seeing credits, seeing credits, basically. <laughs> And I guess as a sign-off for the band, that's a beautiful name for your final song. Trio always, they always were, you know. Same. Mm-hmm. This is us. Yep, same member, start to finish. It's there's something quite uh, prescient about that, un- unless they maybe knew that they were going to as well. I don't know, but um, as you can probably guess, I am fucking absolutely rock solid for this album. I love it. It's about as enthused as I'm going to get. So there's there's really no contest. Uh, yeah, I mean it's. I find a lot of this type of music, uh, the more generic math rock, as we said before, really hard to emotionally grab onto, you know, and it can be very impressive. It can even be quite dancey when you're watching it live. But why would you listen to an album of it when you have no emotional attachment to it at all? Weirdly, with this record, like, there's no emotional narrative to it there's no deep story it is still all in a you know a lot of it's still in major key but the emotion fun is an emotion is it or enjoyment mm-hmm. happiness <laughs> happiness yeah. i think is the way you're looking like for. there's just a joy in this record that i that i attach to and that's my my emotional attachment to it it's just a fucking such a fun record yeah they're taking the piss a little bit but like they do it really really well yeah, great band. Yeah, it's a, it's a band with a sense of humour, and it doesn't really come through as much on any other albums as it does on this one, which is mm-hmm. which makes it my favourite of theirs. They I often they'd often call themselves robot rock because of the vocal they're hanging right, and that's a total Daft Punk vibe. And I think a lot of the time the playing is so technical and advanced that it does almost feel, and and it's got a lot of nods to computer game music. It almost feels robotic. But it has so much more heart and humanity than a lot of bands and pretty much any band in this genre, I think. Mm-hmm. It feels like there's a ghost in the machine and that's why I love it, you know. It's, it's got a nod and a wink. Um, it makes you just, it just makes you smile when you hear it. Not many albums do that. Even albums that you love, they don't make you fucking grin from ear to ear like this one does, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, one, one thing about this album is how well it's aged and I think that's because of the things you're describing. The sense of humour, the sort of, the, the technical technical skill married to the kind of organic feel and like it's it's just such a great balance and it. it's just sustained so well for me it's still an absolute permanent fixture in the van on any tour mm-hmm. if you need to lift the spirits like dave says this is like a big injection of bliss into any long tour drive you know i think the guys having toured the hard way the way adbc shank did on the underground at times they'll feel quite proud that they're able to in- inject so much relief into so many other tour vans up and down the, the, the continent the, uh, acro- across the world for bands that are flagging it that you know as they're trying to cross the German border after being held up in traffic it's like stick this on and they're they're, they're giving back to the scene in so many ways yeah yep. so yeah well it goes in for me absolutely yeah and I'm just really glad to be able to you know use this podcast for something as pure is that mission, you know, because that is, this is a grossly under-acknowledged record, and I really hope that the listeners 
go out their way to find it, but also go out their way to try and spread the good news as well, because it definitely needs, you know, it's worth proselytising about. Absolutely. All right. Well, what time of what time is it now? It's Nexus no. time, and in response to our listener, uh, who was it that asked for this? Somebody said the Nexus music needs freshened up, and I was like, you know what? That's true. Because, you know, it's been a long time since we had Fritz and then we had the current sort of like Picard thing. Um, so I've made a new Nexus tune and you guys haven't heard it yet. <laughs> You're going to hear it first well, we'll, when this episode goes out. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, right, Mark, do a, do a fake response right now. <laughs> Nexus. 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 A complicated series of connections between different things. Oh wow, Chris, that is fantastic. I <laughs> I didn't know that you could play the trumpet so well. Uh, I didn't know that I could like feel butt. emotionally attached to the trumpet. So uh well done, Chris, thanks. <laughs> With your butt. With my butt, yeah. Is that a banjo? <laughs> a banjo snapping. butt. <laughs> <laughs> Been there. Um, right, so the Nexus. Uh, Reba the Mail Lady, as chosen by Davy Bright. Reba the Mail Lady, who I had to look up. Reba the Mail Lady is from Pee Wee Herman. Uh, Pee Wee's Playhouse. She's also... Yeah, Pee-wee's Playhouse. Can we just say, I had to look this up as well because I was like, what's the deal with Pee-wee Herman? Uh, Pee-wee Herman is apparently not a paedophile. Um, Pee-wee Herman was arrested in 1991 for exposing himself in a cinema. Uh, and then, I don't know why, but the police raided his house in November of 2001 and seized 30,000 images that were, to some extent, indecent. Although he said that they were kitschy old stuff from, like, 50s, 60s and 70s. Uh, he said they weren't obscene in any way. Uh, he thought they were cool. But I think, like, a hundred and odd of those images were judged by the police to be a bit dodgy. But in the end, he pleaded guilty to possession of obscene material. Um, he was not convicted of any form of, you know, abuse, child, oh, possession of child pornography or, you know, paedophilia. But he certainly is an unusual character who has walked that line more than most sensible people would care to. Uh, but for the Nexus, uh, Adebisi Shank have to get to Reba the Male Lady. So Adebisi Shank, uh, Vincent from the band The Bassist, was interviewed by goldenpleck.com, which I assume is like a guitar and bass enthusiast webs, webzine. Uh, and during that interview, he was talking about the fact that he, he really liked the movie Splice, but said that when he was watching that, anytime he sees Adrian Brody, he couldn't stop thinking about Brody Quest. Do you guys know Brody, Brody Quest? Quest? Okay, this is fucking brilliant. All right, Brody Quest is a video on YouTube with 11 million views. Uh, it was put up in 2010. Uh, it was performed by Lemon Demon, which is the alter ego of uh, Neil Cicierega. Um, basically, it's it's like a four and a half minute ridiculous thing that can only exist because the internet, uh, which is the best day of Adrian Brody's life, and it's literally just him marching along through a series of amusing skits uh, to 
this fucking hilarious electronic sort of daft tune I mean it's brilliant and I understand and probably now anytime I watch the fucking pianist I'm going to be thinking about this stupid video One of the greatest things about Brody Quest was the fact that the comment section has like 48,000 comments, right? And what happened was, I don't know, it's some kind of weird Chan offshoot, right? But basically, users started keeping their personal diaries in the comments. So there's like one guy who's got 863 diary entries at the last count. But there's loads more. It's just people keeping their personal diaries. So some examples of this guy's diary... Uh, my friend and I uh, planned to bring a GameCube to school today. We did it, and it was tons of fun. <laughs> <laughs> today, I mostly vibed out, uh, and those days are nice days. Uh, I agree. I haven't had a d and I'm assuming that means Dungeons & Dragons, session in a hot minute. Uh, most likely don't have lupus uh, One of my yeah, favourites <laughs> So like pe- people have just added Their personal diaries in the comment section It's fucking brilliant Because then they started doing sub Q&As On their own personal diaries On this comment section From other posters I mean you got to get dug into it It's fantastic um, But the, the user that put that one up That I just took excerpts from Was called Logia Masters Brackets Sham XHAM Which I think Some kind of Online gaming thing Lugia Is a character From Pokemon Um, And uh, Pokemon Apollo Is a fan hacked Version of Pokemon Fire Red Where you basically Side with the bad guys To make life hell For the Pokemon trainers Who are usually The good guys Um, Apollo Comes from the Apollo Space Program The Apollo Space Program Some of the suits Were partly designed By Playtex Right, Playtex, the offshoot of the latex company who did like bras and sportswear and stuff like that. In 2004, Playtex sold off some of its subsidiary brands, including a carpet cleaner called Woolite. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yes, we're talking about carpet cleaner. In <laughs> so far away right now. <laughs> two, no, I've only got two more steps. In 2011, an advert for Woolite carpet cleaner and detergent was directed by Rob Zombie. <laughs> Uh, And he's like Lords of Salem era I have absolutely No fucking idea why Uh, And one of Rob Zombie's Earliest breaks in TV Was in the mid 80s He worked as a Production assistant On Pee Wee's Playhouse Wow And Reba the male lady Was a character From Pee Wee's Playhouse Well done That was impressive (laughs) And no Nazis either I don't know Weird I was in such a good mood after listening to ADBC Shank. Who wants to talk about Nazis? Yeah, that's true. Dave? Uh, well, okay, so ADBC Shank, well, at least one of them are from Fetard on Sea uh, in County Wexford in Ireland, and it is a very small village of around 300. Uh, and in 1957, Fetard on Sea became newsworthy because the Roman Catholic villagers boycotted 
the Protestant-owned local businesses in response to the actions of a Protestant woman, Sheila Cloney, who left her Catholic husband and then took her kids away, all because they were being forced to go to the local Catholic school. The boycott received national and international attention. Um, Family reconciled eventually and they just homeschooled. They actually made a film about that in 1999. The film also proved to be controversial. There were allegations of fabrication and historical misrepresentation. But the press focused uh, their main criticism on one of the writers, uh, Jerry Gregg, being a communist uh, and a former member of the Workers' Party of Ireland. And he was accused of antagonism towards the Roman Catholic Church. Uh, so, oh dear. Uh, anyway, uh, Sheila Cloney, the mother of that story, was played by Orla Brady in the film, 1999's A Love Divided. Orla Brady, um, a very successful, well-renowned Irish actress, uh, and she played alongside David Suchet in the final series of Agatha Christie's Poirot. David Suchet... I did not know until I saw the film that he had appeared in some Hollywood movies and he appears in Executive Decision as the uh, Middle Eastern... <laughs> he's the bad guy. Yeah, he's the he's Middle like, Eastern yeah, bad, bad guy. guy. Ar- he plays an Arab. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, but yeah, so, so David way. Suchet uh, played the Arab bad guy in Executive Decision, uh, which also starred Kurt Russell and John Legazumo. Is that how you pronounce his name? Leguizamo. Leguizamo, I believe. Uh, now, John Leguizamo said in his uh, 2006 memoir of Kurt Russell, Kurt Russell apparently continuously called him a faggot during that film. He also had quite a few other things to say about other co-stars in, in different films. He said that Leonardo DiCaprio was a patron of prostitutes, uh, that Steven Seagal had <laughs> diva tendencies, um, but <laughs> no kidding. But he stated that working with Arnold Arnold Schwarzenegger on 2002's classic Collateral Damage was one of the most enjoyable experiences he'd had as an actor, and that apparently Schwarzenegger's accent let him say things that others would deem sexist or homophobic if said by somebody else. I don't know why that's a good thing, but <laughs> apparently <laughs> that's a thing. Um, Arnold Schwarzenegger obviously has been in some films. Uh, he is probably best known as The Terminator. Uh, the best or the highest grossing one of those is Terminator 2. And Terminator 2 featured in the role of Teresa Dyson, uh, Miss S. Epitha Merkerson, who also played whatever her name is. Reba the, the male Reba woman the male. in uh, Pee-wee's Playhouse. So, uh, yeah, she went from Pee-wee's Playhouse on to Terminator 2. I have the same ending. Oh, well, there you are. <laughs> um, so, Adebisi Shank are named after the character of Simon Adebisi in Oz. Um, Simon Adebisi was played by Adewale Akinoye Agbaji, um, who's also really well known for playing Mr. Echo in Lost. There's been a ton of good actors in Lost, including a guy called John Hawks. Have you guys heard of John Hawks? Don't think he I was in Eastbound and Down. He played the, the main character's brother on Eastbound and Down. He was also in Winter's Bone, where he plays Teardrop. Been in a lot of things. Good character actor. Um, but he was also in a, a spin-off the TV, a, a spin-off TV series of the film The Crow, called The Crow, Stairway to Heaven, <laughs> which ran, ran for 22 goddamn episodes <laughs> in 1998. <laughs> um, 
The main character was still Eric Draven, who is the main character in the first Crow film, uh, but he's played by Mark Dacosis, not Brandon Lee, because obviously Brandon Lee was dead. Um, yep. John Hawks plays a, a suicidal stunt motorcyclist in one episode. <laughs> um, of course. <laughs> the Crow actually has three sequels. I don't know if you knew that, but I've seen all three. I've seen all four Crow films. Yeah. yeah. Do you know that uh, one of them is meant to be directed by Rob Zombie? Yeah. Uh, you're just nexusing the, the nexuses. <laughs> and the third one uh, is called Wicked Prayer and it stars Edward Furlong as Jimmy Cuervo it's a truly awful film it's got 1% on Rotten Tomatoes and I have seen it and it is fucking awful um, but it's got it's got fucking Tara Reid in it uh, Danny Trejo Dennis Hopper I mean Tara Reid is not a sign I, of I quality she's, Tara, she's she's in Sharknado <laughs> <laughs> the notion that Tara Reid would be uh, affiliated with a bad film is frankly <laughs> ludicrous it's also got David Baranis you know who plays Angel and Buffy in it um, he's like one of the bad guys but yeah um, Edward Furlong was in Terminator 2 and as Dave has just told us mm. uh, Teresa Dyson was played by S. Ebitha Merkithan well great stuff Thanks, ADBC Shank. That's been fun. What are we doing next week? Uh, we're going to do a hip-hop album because we haven't done one since, properly since MF Doom earlier on this year. So we're going mm-hmm. to do The Cold Vein by uh, the Cold Vein, sorry, by Cannibal Ox. Well, that'll ah. be bloody fun. One that I have, which is <laughs> what the chances yeah. of <laughs> picking a hip-hop album that I have already. <laughs> right, well, I'm going to pick out the tub a nexus for the cold vein and cannibal ox let's see what it is <laughs> Craig has chosen Teddy Ruxpin <laughs> of course he has <laughs> cannibal ox to Teddy Ruxpin awesome well thanks Craig uh, cheers Craig alright well everybody enjoy whatever tier you may well be in um, we're enjoying rare sunshine we've had a week of blue skies which in Scotland is a once in a decade experience so um, freakish yeah, I know. I'm going to go out and try and finish off my tan at 9pm tonight <laughs> finish it <laughs> off because tans are something you've finished yeah well I'm, I'm, I'm at 9 out of 10 I just need one more I need one more tan <laughs> uh, okie doke well I look forward to next week and I look forward to seeing your reactions to the new Nexus jingle everybody Go and have some fun. Goodbye. Fun.